0: Uh, it is good to be here. <clears throat> I was uh, thinking even this morning at the first service that it's sort of surreal actually in a lot of ways to be up here now when uh, 20 plus years ago I was running around out there as just a little kid and I thought it's probably just as surreal for a lot of you uh, to now see me up here. Uh, There was a lot of really fun memories for me as I was preparing this uh, sermon this morning that as I reflected back, I I remember actually when the sanctuary was built and having our first services in here. Uh, I remember all sorts of things uh, about just life in the sanctuary. One thing about that stood out in particular, and actually my friend Brian Martin is here this morning. Hi, hi Brian. Um, (laughs) We used to sit out there together, and it was back in the day before you would really clap after the musical number was over. And we thought it might actually be fun to start the clapping after the musical number was over. And so it was this lovely song, and, and uh, sure enough, we began clapping. I think we were the only two in the church who were clapping, and the head sort of snapped. Yeah, see, your, your mom, Brian, remembers that time, as we were kind of trying to crawl under the pew, uh, feeling sort of sheepish. Uh, a second and much happier memory from that was remembering how I had met my future wife, Hallie, here at the Sun City Youth Group at just 15 years old. It was love at first sight for me. And I demonstrated that love, I remember it clearly, as only a teenage boy can, by picking her up and tossing her into the snowbank. It obviously worked well. So we set our wedding vows actually right up here some 12 years ago now. And there's just a lot of really good memories. It's really good to be back here with you. Now, as to what brings me here specifically this morning, as some of you know, I, now, I know probably not many do, but as some of you know, uh, my family and I have spent the last couple years in Scotland. And the initial reason for our going there related to my studies at the University of Edinburgh. But it turned out to be an experience that was far greater than we would have thought. We had the chance to meet many people We developed a lot of lifelong friends, I suppose. We got to watch our children go to school there and develop these cool little Scottish accents. And about halfway through our time, I couldn't even understand my own six-year-old son anymore. It was fantastic. We had our third child, Samuel, there last December, and that experience was very different than in the States. They sort of just... Let you have the baby wherever, and they come with tea and toast at 3 in the morning, and they figure tea and toast solves just about anything. And, uh, and it did. We, uh, at least for me, you now I didn't have to go through the birthing process. Not, you know, Hallie can come up next week and tell you more. Um, Love listening to the sounds of bagpipes in the city, golfing at St. Andrews, walking just those sort of ancient hills and islands, learning the history of battle from William Wallace to World War II. And, of course, spending evenings in those great British pubs, just talking about life and God and faith uh, over a pint of water. Uh Uh-huh. We really did like it there. It It was good. However, in the middle, honestly, of all these things that we enjoyed, there was a dimension of our time in Scotland. Again, I know not many of you know this, but some of you do, that there is a dimension there that proved to be a time of great testing for me and our family. It was a season of intense pain, quite frankly, and at points it was darkness of the deepest kind. It's a testing that has deeply affected our perspective now on life, and it's caused us to wonder about a number of things including primarily for the purposes here this morning, what it means really to follow Jesus and to follow in his footsteps. It's in fact that these ongoing changes in perspective that bring me here this morning, having given rise to this sermon, though I fear it's far less of a sermon and far more of a testimony of sorts. I've never really given this kind of sermon before. And and one of my fears is that somehow in, in... In the story that I'm going to share of our life, that that the bigger picture of God and His kingdom and following Jesus, which is the important point, gets lost. I don't want the focus to be on the story, but out of that story, uh, some deep lessons were learned for me and for our family. It's also a deeply personal story, but I really wanted to come back here and share it at Wayzata, As, as Carol mentioned. We've been away for a while. But the the outpouring of support in prayer for our family during that time was amazing. It was amazing. And so I wanted to come back and say thank you and tell you a little bit about what has happened. So as a preface of sorts, before I pray and get into the the story, I should set up the sermon by saying that this time of testing brought me face-to-face with some realities about who I was and what was and what wasn't part of my discipleship. In fact, this time of testing caused me to realize that a great deal of my Christian journey was spent having missed altogether the call of Jesus on our life. Even though, for me, these words were greatly familiar. I don't know if some of this is familiar to you. Uh, I had heard, but did not really know, in, in the sense of living into it, that a seed must die in order to bear fruit. I had heard, but did not really know That we do have to lose our lives in order to find them. I had heard but did not really know that you can endeavor to gain the whole world only to lose your soul. And I had heard, but never really thought about Jesus' words in his invitation to pick up the cross and follow. I've heard these things because I've been in the Christian community mostly all of my life and have a master's degree in divinity and have pastored in a church and have taught Bible and theology in a college. And and yet none of these things by themselves really have any power at all for the discipleship journey. They really, quite frankly, have little to nothing to do with it because you can do all those things and never learn what it means to die in order to live. Degrees and titles, they're all fine. But over the last couple of years, I've come to believe it's in the everyday grittiness of real life and in those deep and dark seasons of testing where we hear the call of Jesus on our lives and it does not take a master's degree or some title to hear it. In fact, sometimes those things, I think, even prevent it. I'm certain that there's people here who have journeyed down this path of surrender and have picked up that cross for far longer than I have. And I hope that the words that I share this morning are just some form of support and courage for your journey as you continue. For those of you that, like me, had never really known what it meant to pick up the cross, I hope these words are an invitation into a different kind of life. The kind of life in which you find the reality of the life of God available on a moment-by-moment basis. But it's only available for those who have picked up their cross. And with that, I would like to pray as we continue. God, prayer is the same, that you would inhabit this place and that you would breathe your life into us this morning. You know the individual tapestry of every person here. And I pray by your spirit, you will meet them and me where we are right now. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, the invitation may be familiar to you. The call of Jesus is recorded in various places and ways in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he says that if we're to follow him, if we want to be his disciple, we need to pick up our cross. And again, what in the world does something like that mean? I've heard those words, as I've said, dozens of times. But but what does it really mean to pick up one's cross? I understand it's probably an analogy of sorts, but, but how does that look like in my life? What do you have to do? Is it about sacrifice? That sort of thing. And as I thought on that, I thought, you know, I'm willing to give this a go. I can pick up my cross. What do I have to do? I'm a big coffee guy, so does carrying my cross mean that I sacrifice by Ordering just a small, half calf skinny, extra-hot cappuccino with one pump of sugar-free vanilla instead of a large? I'm kind of a high-maintenance coffee guy. With three young kids, that would be a sacrifice. (laughs) Can I get an iPod and still be a disciple? Is it picking up my cross to settle for the 4-gig nano unit instead of the 60-gig, 15,000-song model? What does all of it mean? Uh, Three months ago, for the first time... In my life, I heard those words in a different way. And for the first time in my life, I heard them in a way that maybe at least finally penetrated into me just a bit to the point where I understood what that call was. We are on the Isle of Iona, just off of the west coast of Scotland, and we are with some really dear friends there. It was uh, Good Friday. It's uh, the island where Christianity first came to Scotland, and they have an abbey established there. And so we went for the Good Friday service, and as we walked the stations of the cross, we got to station number two, and we're standing in the sand in the beach. And this man reads out the words, If anybody wants to be my disciple, let him pick up his cross. And then there was silence, and then a woman read the same words, If anyone wants to be my disciple, let her pick up their cross. And four times that was read, twice by a man, twice by a woman. And in the ensuing silence, I remember nodding my head again just a bit saying, I think I have a glimpse of that for the first time. Of course, it took a trial that tore into the deepest reaches of my own disordered life and my own sinful heart where I saw both the depths of my own ugliness and how bright God's offer of life really is. It took all of that to even just get a glimpse Because 18 months before standing in Iona, my family and I were boarding that plane, getting on that plane to go to Scotland, where I began pursuing that Ph.D. in Religious Studies. And, And this move represented, for me, at least in my disordered standards, and I believe the standards of the world, it represented another step up the ladder, as it were, in what was a blossoming career in ministry. For the previous 12 years, I had been moving up that ladder from church intern to a large church pastor to, to, to professor in colleges and universities, and I thought, with this Ph.D., I'm only one little Christian book with a catchy Christian title away from the shelves at Northwestern Bookstore, and ministry superstardom will surely await. You know, but you've got to think of a good title, otherwise you know, you're relegated to the back shelves. Yet in those quiet moments that we often don't like to talk about or share with other people. In those moments where the clock reads 2 a.m. and your mind and my mind is still spinning. And in those moments where the subterranean angst of the soul begins to surface into the mind and heart, and if you take a second to even pay attention to them, as I finally did, I knew something was greatly out of whack. Though I was moving up, at least by the standards of this world and my own disordered standards, up some kind of ladder, I could sense a disease afflicting my heart. And being honest, I began to realize how much of this move and this ascent was related to my own desire for personal significance. You see, I was the kind of guy who, embarrassingly enough, liked to sit around with former seminary buddies and compare our careers. When asked what I was doing, I could respond with that, you know, wonderful, obligatory Christian humility that we have. Yeah, and, and I could respond and, and say something about that I work at Church of the Open Door. And, and, and they would say, what? And, and then that would give me free space to be able to belt out. I work at Church of the Open Door, you know, that huge church out in Maple Grove with the worldwide ministry. Yeah, that one. And, and what did you say you were doing? oh, you're shoveling coal into the furnace to, to heat up the, you know, the, the church before the service. That's nice. It seems kind of servity of you. See, ministry, horribly enough, was mostly, as I said, a pursuit of significance for me i thought if i could have an impact for the kingdom however that's defined if i could have an impact for the kingdom then my life would be deemed important both by earthly and heavenly standards and it could be ministry it can be whatever job career found anything at all that we deem to be important and that if i could fulfill that it would bring peace to my disordered soul what a lie what a lie my life in yours is important because of the creator because you and me are knit together by him no matter what it is you're doing stops and ends right there as i became more aware of my disordered pursuit i grew to hate it I thought, I've got to do something about this. So my first recourse was kind of doing to engage in those standard Christian behaviors. And, I, and I'm sure you know many of them. I, I went to the behaviors, I, I did quiet times, and I listened to Christian music. And I had my radio in the car, tuned to KTIS all the time, you know. And, and, and I was doing all of these sorts of things. And they sort of helped to put the Band-Aid on, maybe from week to week. But by themselves, they didn't seem to have the power to penetrate my own sinful heart. What I've come to learn is that the Christian lifestyle, as it were, without a surrendered heart, is impotent. And so after years of battling in this way, I stumbled into the one thing that might actually be able to change one's heart. I asked God for help. Oh, there's a novel idea. You know, it was kind of even out of my own sense of, you know, God, help me. And, you know, help me, God. And, and it was my own sense of pride even sort of thing. And for those of you who have prayed that kind of prayer, you know how foolishly unprepared we can be when God actually begins to answer that prayer and take it seriously. For me, I distinctly remember praying this prayer one spring day in 2004 before our move. God changed my heart. And I'll never forget how the answers began to come. They actually came some one week later when I was sitting in the living room with my wife and our then four-year-old boy Caleb in the living room of our townhome in Plymouth. And we were looking through a family album and there was pictures of Black Lake, Michigan, which is a place where Hallie has had and her family's had a a cabin for generations. And we go there every summer and Caleb really enjoyed it. And we said, Caleb, you really liked it there, didn't you? And he said, yeah. And then he said something that for however long I, I, I walk this earth, I don't think I'll ever forget. He looked up and he said, can we go there after daddy passes away? It's like, you know, in the room. And and Hallie and I both had sort of this audible gasp. What? What, what did you just say? And this is sort of, for me, even a bigger response than that because I was in the middle of my own personal journey of mortality and significance and feeling like I only had so many years to make an impact and I had to keep climbing and and I wanted to do that before I died and all of these sorts of things. So it's even much bigger for me. So for me, being the spiritual giant and wonderful parent that I am, I wanted to interrogate the little guy, you know. Four years old, I figured if I could just bring the floor lamp over across the living room and maybe screw in a 100 watt light bulb, I could, with the heat and the light, disorient him a bit and, uh, and see what we could come up with. I mean, I've read Clancy and Flynn. I know my little CIA kind of things. Thankfully, Hallie was a little bit uh, more calm than I was, and she said, Peter, he's only four. He's only four. So then I thought, well, if we can only just make it to the family cabin that summer, if I'm at least there with them, you know, then this prophecy uttered in our room or whatever it was, you know, it'll all be for naught. So so I watched my steps very carefully over the next few months and sure enough, made it. Made it to the cabin and all seemed back on track and we got off to Scotland, okay, and settled in for six or eight weeks there. And then on October 20th, 2004, the twitching... <laughs> began. And it started innocently enough for me. I was working on my computer on my laptop. My fingers were on the little home row there and and looking down and suddenly my left index finger started jerking back and forth in a really severe sort of fashion. I was missing the J key and hitting the K key all the time uh, on the keyboard as my finger was twitching. I thought, well, this is kind of weird and it didn't go away after an hour and it didn't go away after two hours and even a day and two and three days and my finger was still twitching. This is just strange. And, of course, the twitching then extended past my finger and into the rest of the muscles of my body. This is just crazy what's going on. And even before kind of the spread, I had gone, I wanted to get rid of this finger twitch, so I decided to play doctor, you know, on my own, and and went on the Internet. That's always a real smart thing to do when you're trying to diagnose yourself, as some of you probably know. I just was looking like, like a bag of ice on the forearm. Maybe it will stop the twitching or something. And I went on there, and the first site that I went to led me, a site that was the home for ALS and it's more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease and it's a it's a neurological condition that's invariably fatal usually within two to four years and is characterized by the profuse twitching of one's muscles and also then the ongoing weakness that eventually leads to paralysis and death 100% fatal and I was looking around at my body as I'm lighting up like a Christmas tree twitching all over every muscle and my body twitching, wondering what is going on, and the words of my four-year-old son echoing in the background. Can we go there after Daddy passes away? By the time we got back for Christmas that year, I was a total wreck, as you can imagine. Saw a number of doctors who assured me it was all going to be okay. The final one being a neurologist who put me on some medication, at least to help control the anxiety at that time, uh, to see if that could help, and, and he wanted to see me in a couple of weeks. I went back after a couple of weeks, and the symptoms were all the same. They were all still there. The, the medication had not worked. And this time in the appointment, he had seen the sort of the profuse twitching of my arm, and he wanted to run what was called an EMG, an electrical test, to see how the muscles in my body were functioning, in which they, they take a needle, stick them into each of the muscles, and find out if there's anything malignant going on. So we went back two days later, and Hallie and I sat in the room as he went from one muscle to the next down my arm, and into my hand and down my left leg, into my knee. And and, uh, when he was done, after about a half an hour of testing, the room was definitely quiet. And finally, he found his voice and he said, I'm going to need to send you down to Dr. Perry at the University of Minnesota to confirm what I'm seeing here. What are you seeing here? He said, I'm seeing motor neuron disease, ALS. How sure are you? 70 to 80%. Now, I know that there's people in here. I know there just has to be people in here who have experienced that kind of reality, both either for themselves or for someone that they love, getting that kind of thing breathed over them. And so you know of just sort of the blackness that starts to envelop you and the despair that starts to well up inside and the sobbing of the deepest and and sort of retching kind as that, that starts to come. I went home that afternoon, and of course our kids didn't know anything about what was going on, and our little daughter Anna, who was not yet three at the time, was playing in the basement of the home in which we were staying. And she was playing with these little figurines down there, some, some different kids and parents and you know, little people kinds of stuff. And I said, hey Anna, what, what are you doing? She said, I'm playing with my guys. I said, what's going on? She said, well, well this boy here, he's, he's real sad. I said, really, why? Well, he's, he's got his mom. He's got his mom right here. But he can't find his dad anywhere. His dad is lost. And he's really sad. And I looked at that and suddenly I was faced with the reality of seeing my children grow up. Not seeing my children grow up. is devastating. There's nowhere to run. And I found myself repeating over the next hours and days ahead, several times a day it seemed, Hallie and I both, Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane where he cries out, Father, let this cup pass from me. And it wasn't because I thought I was so spiritual or that's what I was supposed to do as a Christian. It's just what was welling up inside. Father, let this cup pass from me. And even as I prayed that prayer, the despair and the anxiety did nothing but grow I was finding no peace or joy. But with that prayer, in the midst of that prayer, in, in, in this sort of weird way, there was another voice that was speaking there. And it was calm and quiet, inviting in its way. And it was reminding me that there was a second part to Jesus' prayer in the garden. The part where after entreating the Father with, let this cup pass from me, He raises His eyes towards His Father and says, nevertheless, God, let your will come. Be done. And I never really understood the importance of that second half of Jesus' prayer before ever in my entire Christian journey. And before I get into a little bit more about what that meant for me and for us, I, I need to back up because it needs some context for the significance of this prayer. There needs to be perhaps just a bit of biblical explanation as to what was happening in Gethsemane when Jesus said these words. For when he said nevertheless let your will be done. When he he went with this final act of surrendering to the Father everything that he had, in 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 those final moments, he gave up everything that was his by his divine right and picked up his cross. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says this about those moments in Gethsemane. He says, though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider that equality with God something to be grasped or hung on to. I need to have this. When he said, nevertheless, let your will be done, he laid it down and he took on the form of a servant. And being made in human likeness, Paul writes, he became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And I don't know, but I believe that This time in Gethsemane was part of a monumental battle in the life of Jesus. The Scripture says that he was sweating blood at this time. And I believe it's because in Gethsemane, he was doing battle with the original sin of humankind, the sin that afflicts all of us, the sin of Adam and Eve in their own garden, not Gethsemane this time, but Eden. I believe to understand what was happening in Gethsemane, one needs to understand what was happening in Eden. For when Adam and Eve said yes to the serpent to become like God, knowing good and evil, what they were saying essentially was this, thank you, God, for your help, but we can do it on our own now. We can be the judge for our own lives, what is good and what is evil. We can be the judge for our own journeys and take control of our destiny. And with this action, they created a sort of new God-defiant reality in this world where every conceivable kind of pain and fear and anxiety and destruction is now made possible as we try to control our own lives, just look at the headlines and you'll know that this is true. And so in the context of the death and destruction of Eden, now back in Gethsemane, I I don't know, but in my mind's eye, I sort of have this picture of all of creation pausing with bated breath, awaiting the answer for the most important question ever asked. Would Jesus the Son of God, follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve and strike out in his own, thus dooming the world? Or would he submit to the will of the Father and pick up the sins of the world that is lost in its defiance? In the end, we know that obviously our Savior did pick up that cross. And with it, everything changed. In a world that was holy, God-defiant, a new way of life came. Romans 5 says this about the undoing of Eden in the events of Gethsemane. When Adam sinned, sin entered into this world. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God, a new life for everyone. And I think it's important to note here, because I can get confused with this sort of thing, that the death referred to in this passage that Adam brought into this world is not a physical death. That's an entirely different word that would be used altogether for that. It's the death of the soul. And one author defines it as the misery of the soul which arises from sin and it begins on this earth and increases and lasts after the death of the body. The death that Adam brought is the death of the soul, the misery of sin, and I have tasted that kind of death. I'm guessing so have you. It's part of the human race. In the same way, the life that Jesus promises here is not a physical life. It is the very Zoe, is the word of God, and and it's referred to as the absolute fullness of life which belongs to God and is in portion anyway, present and available to the people of this world. And it is a life of love In joy and peace, in the midst of the most profound turmoil that you could ever experience, the fullness of Zoe, the life of God, is available. But it only comes to those people who have surrendered on a daily basis. It's the only way it's available. Otherwise, death reigns. And if you're like me, as I've controlled the events of my life, you know what it's like to experience the misery of the soul. It is the death that has been brought. So as I laid there one night a few days into this experience and in the midst of my turmoil and fear and despair and the midst of the paralyzing worry that I would not get to see my children grow up the calm voice of Jesus' invitation began to grow a bit louder pick up your cross Peter surrender your life and the life of your family into the Father's care You don't know what will happen to you. That's not the point. Leave Eden, Peter. Come into Gethsemane. Even then, as that voice was growing, I found it near impossible to even say those words. Nevertheless, let your will be done in this. I think the depth of our defiance runs so deep. But in those moments, Jesus held on with his tender and understanding hand, a hand that does sympathize with our weaknesses. And with his hand, it allowed me to finally splutter out in the weakest fashion, weakest possible fashion the second half of his prayer. And looking at a future of uncertainty and death, I finally managed to squeak out, nevertheless, let your will be done. Looking in this ALS straight in the face, God, I don't know, nevertheless, let your will be done. In those ensuing moments after I spluttered out this prayer, (laughs) however weak it is, the veil that separates the dimension of our physical world from that of the Spirit somehow became very thin. I don't know how to describe it differently than that. I'm even sort of hesitant to try it, and I know it sounds probably kind of kooky. But in those moments, all I can think to say was that time and eternity somehow got all mixed up. And in those moments, God gave me a gift that I hope forever remains stamped on my soul, however long I should live. For in those moments He allowed me to see that even though I die, yet I shall live. And with that promise to Zoe, the life of God, in ways that for 30 years as a believer I had never experienced in my entire life, began to flow. And it took the death of everything, to even glimpse the life that is there. For the first time in my life, I saw that a seed must die in order to bear fruit. That you really do have to lose your life in order to find it. That you can endeavor indeed to gain the whole world, only to lose your soul. And that the surrender that occurs when you daily pick up your cross, is the core and the crux of all discipleship. Discipleship is not a 10-step program or a book you can read. It might include those things. It's not a set of Christian behaviors. It's one thing. It's picking up your cross. And for me, I needed a lot of help to even get to that point. As a postscript to the story, I should add that I did end up seeing Dr. Perry some 10 days after that first diagnosis was breathed over me. And it was kind of a weird time in my life and, and Hallie's life, with, with all of this happening and this new reality taking place in my spirit. It was such a sweet time with God that, that the fear was amazing and, and the unknown was enough to take my breath away. But there was this sweetness that was happening that I was afraid that if we got down to Dr. Perry's office and he said, no, it's not ALS, that, that I would sort of lose that, that reality, that I would just slide right back into my, my defiant ways. So I wasn't ready for Dr. Perry to say, no, it's not ALS. And of course I'm not really ready for him to say, yes, it is ALS. That wasn't what I wanted either. And so we were with some dear friends of ours and, and we just began to pray for a middle way. Is there something, God, you can do in this? Because the reality of this needs to continue to, to grow. So we got down there and Dr. Perry did... His battery of tests, same thing with the EMGs and, and all that sort of thing. And, and he looked up and he said, you know, I don't know for sure. I, I can't know this because it can take a long time to play itself out. But I really don't think you have ALS. I think you have some other kind of neurological condition, which, as any of you have known me for a while, you'd know that was true anyway. Um <laughs> But, but you have some other kind of neurological condition that causes all this bodily twitching but, and, and a lot of the fatigue in the muscles and that sort of thing, but it doesn't lead to the progressive death of your muscles. You can have it for a long time, actually. I don't think you have ALS, but I don't know for sure. It's going to take some time to play this out. Now, there's a the middle way. There's a the middle way. Sort of taken off of me, and yet not quite completely, to live in the reality of what's there, and so we continue. It's, it's a year and a half on, it can even take longer than this, although most likely at this point is not going to be something very malignant like that. It still is uncertain, and we live in the midst of that. But that's not even really the important point. The point is the call, and it's the call that Jesus has that he, he stands in front of us with all the time, having beaten death the death of this world, by picking up his own cross, he stands before us all with the same offer every day in a wide variety of ways. And I don't know what that's going to look like for you. I don't have any idea. No educational degree or pastoral title allows me to prescribe for you a set of behaviors that would allow that to happen. The tapestry of your own life is unique. And I know, I know that everyone here is dealing with something different that could use some surrender. In my own life, it is hardly realized. The journey has just begun. What I can do this morning is urge all of us to consider the call of Jesus, whatever that might look like, whatever it might look like, to pick up the cross and to partner with him and trusted friends in your community of faith and wonder what it might mean to live out that reality. All I know for sure is that the life of God is good. It's good. And whatever happens from here, that, that is what I want. There's no other way. He stands before us all, offering a different way of life. I'd like you to stand, if you could, as we close in prayer, and I'll give a benediction. That again, my prayer is that you would just infuse your life into your people, whatever that might look like. Turn the eyes of our hearts towards you that we may walk through our own form of death and into your life. I pray you would make these things possible by the power of your spirit. Amen.